Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are here with Paul Donovan from UBS. He's the Managing Director of Global Economics. And I suppose that it's fairly obvious that um, there would be an impact on uh, Great Britain should uh, the country vote to leave. And there have been all kinds of estimates about what that might be. But I'm a little – I'm curious about what the impact on the rest of the world will be and on the U.S. Janet Yellen goes up to Capitol Hill today for her semiannual monetary policy testimony, and I'm sure she'll be asked the same thing uh, because she said last week it would have – an impact on the U.S., and they took that into consideration when they decided to hold rates. But how bad an impact would it be? Well, you've got uh, two areas where you, you get an impact. I think on the first, um, you have uh, obviously an impact on the European Union itself. There would be consequences of this for the European Union. European Union is an enormous trade partner for the United States, so there's got to be a concern about trade linkages. It's not just the U.K. as uh, fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. You've got the EU as you know, arguably the, the largest or second largest economy in the world that would also be affected. And then the second thing, of course, is the financial system interlinkages and the financial contagion. Now, here I think we need to be a bit cautious. This is not 2007. What happened after 2007 has caused um, a, a parochialization of finance around the world. And so we don't have the interlinkages that we did have, but there are still sufficient interlinkages there that if you get disruption in the financial markets, that may have implications for uh, the US financial sector. Is it something that would seriously disrupt? I mean, would we see the, uh, you had George Soros out saying we're going to see a 20% crash in the pound. Would we see a concomitant uh, level of stress on US financial markets? Or is it a second order effect? I don't think it, it would be quite so uh, dramatic, and it may evolve more slowly. Uh, I think that there is the prospect for a more immediate reaction in the UK, which will, in the event of an exit vote, would, would then have a period of uncertainty. So you would then see uh, uh, reactions in financial markets to that. Uh, in the United States, I think this would be a, a slower burn, an evolution of the economic consequences, um, and so not a, an immediate dramatic change in financial markets, but something that comes out over the course of several months. What is your optimism of stability? I mean, everybody desires, you and I talked earlier about first derivative and second derivative moves. I mean, the heart of the matter, particularly for global Wall Street, is not levels, not movement, not change, but brutal, as Trichet would put it. Are we entering a brutal period, whatever this vote turns out to be? Well, I think that um, a Remain vote has consequences uh, as well as an exit vote. So we, you know, we can't look at this as just being um, a, a one-way bet. A Remain vote will also change things, and it will change things in Europe. But, of course, this isn't the only political event that we've got this year. You know, we, we've just had Italian local elections, which proved to be anti-establishment. We've got the Spanish elections. Uh, you know, we've got over 30,000 elections taking place in the States in November, um, or most of which will have some bearing on where we're going. So this whole issue about political risk is not going away from the markets. And my concern is that when we look at politics today, it's becoming more and more polarized. And I think this is about the way that 
politics is being organised, the new social media aspects of politics tend to drive people to more extreme positions, it seems. And that is something markets don't handle very well. You know, how do you get, I don't know, a 40% chance of Trump and a 60% chance of Clinton, for example? How do you price in the probability of that when they are so diametrically opposed on their policies? I find extraordinary the challenge that you guys, walking by your headquarters today, walking over from the hotel, have to synthesize the politics of the moment. Yeah. It, to me, Mike, it's absolutely original. And it's not just the U.S. or the United Kingdom. It's nation to nation, literally. I mean, the dialogue just in the last 24 hours of Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump, just as one example, absolutely original. Well, I think, I mean, this is, of course, in, in the 1990s. I mean, who cared who was president of the United States in the 90s? As long as Alan Greenspan was alive and well and running the Federal Reserve, that's all you focused on. But things have changed now. And, of course, the real risk for me that comes of this is, again, this parochialization effect. Economics is global. I can go anywhere in the world and talk about CPI, and people hopefully will know what I'm talking about. Right. But politics is local. It's cultural. It's embedded in, in the society in which you live. It's, if political risk is rising, that's something that is very, very difficult for international investors to necessarily understand. And so the instinct is to say, well, actually, you know what? I'm just going to invest at home. I'm not going to invest overseas. And that, I think, is a mistake because you lose the diversification of your portfolio. But that's the gut instinct in this sort of environment. We were talking about um, extraordinary monetary policy. I want to get your feeling on whether it is still working. Certainly the the Fed is keeping rates low and holding onto its balance sheet, even though they're not uh, currently buying other than reinvesting. But the Japanese are buying. The European Central Bank is buying. Are we seeing any progress? Are we seeing loans uh, grow? Uh, we're not seeing any additional growth or inflation anywhere. Well, that's, that's not entirely true. I mean, if we look at the United States, so the Federal Reserve is actually tightening quantitative policy now in the sense that their balance sheet is falling as a share of GDP. And economically speaking, that's a tightening. But they're tightening policy at a time when core inflation you know, annualized 2.5% in the first half of this year, when you've got core inflation, the trimmed uh, mean inflation rate, service sector inflation, all at or above 20-year averages. So we are seeing an inflation issue, and the Fed is tightening in response to that. In the Eurozone, we can see that when we lose the oil base effect, we will get higher inflation coming through. Growth in the Eurozone this year probably comes in around about 1.5%, but that's above trend for the Eurozone. Uh, and I think that the improvement in bank lending, the improvement in the transmission mechanism in Europe, where banks are pushing money into the economy, that's helping the Eurozone economy. <clears throat> One can question how much of a help negative interest rates are. I'm, right. I, I don't regard that as a monetary policy. I regard mm -hmm. that as a fiscal policy. Um, but for the most part, I think the extraordinary measures have helped. Imagine what would have happened if we didn't have them. That's the thing we've mm. got to do. I've never asked this question, and I'm embarrassed to say that, I, that that's the case. Is the United Kingdom productive, front and center, and Janet Yellen will mention this in her testimony today, productivity in the United States is front and center. Mm. Is the United Kingdom productive looking at capital labor and that mysterious total factor productivity? So, I mean, the great problem economists have with productivity is that productivity is the bit of the economy we don't understand, literally. You know, we, we work out what we do understand and then everything else we call it productivity. In the UK, productivity has been lower. It's, it's been a bit like the United States. We've had very good employment. Nominal GDP has been okay. 
um, but the productivity numbers have, have been lower. Part of the problem, though, we've got in the UK, as we've got in the States, is the data's being revised all the time. Nobody's really sure yeah, what's happened in the last We've got an island nation, essentially, a smaller nation with great respect for scale issues. We've got odd capital dynamics, a hugely weighted London financial, what is it, 17% of GDP is financial, something, something along that line, an interesting original manufacturing component. I can't even begin to how to measure productivity in a more polarized island kingdom. Well, I mean, this is, this is one of the challenges, particularly with the role of the financial sector. You know, what is the productivity of an economist? What's the value of an economist's output? <laughs> uh, we better do stock We don't want to go there. <laughs> um, but this, of course, is a real problem. How do we, we accurately capture in an economy like the United Kingdom, which is you know, uh, basically leading in terms of the move towards service sector uh, growth. I mean, it's one of the first economies to go down that route. So what is it um, that actually uh, dictates you know, what our productivity is when so much is service sector and that's so difficult to measure? Then we've got things like the rise in self-employment. Number of companies in the UK has risen 25% since the crisis. Nearly <coughs> all self-employed yeah. people. How do you measure their productivity? A lot more difficult to capture. What could be done about it if there were if if you were a, a member of congress or if you were janet yellen or, or mario draghi today before the european parliament uh and they said what's the policy change that would affect that what would you say well i don't think um you know, in terms of trying to improve um productivity it comes from the monetary policy side this is not what monetary policy is for this is supply side economics <clears throat> this is flexibility of labor markets it's skills training but it's also flexibility of skills you know, one of the great problems i think at the moment is that in some parts of the world we're churning out university graduates who are low skilled workers because all they've got to do is memorize the textbook to pass the exam that's great until the textbook becomes obsolete in two years' time, you two are obsolete. Yeah. So we need to get that flexibility of I, skills. I, I got to get this question, and it's critical. The Guardian, which is clearly a Remain paper, headline Soros, EU exit risks Black Friday. Do we risk a Black Friday? Is Mr. Soros out over his skis? I think we risk many things, uh, both on exit and on Remain. Um, I think that... Um, one of the features of the campaign from both sides has been a strong language which is not necessarily helping understand mm -hmm. the debate that's going on that we should be having. This has mm -hmm. not perhaps been a terribly measured uh, uh, negotiation and debate between right. the two sides uh, and the, the strong language yeah. has been very common. Paul Donovan, very valuable to have you with us today. Paul Donovan is with UBS. We greatly appreciate uh, him being with television and radio. Michael McKee and Tom King globally on Bloomberg Radio from London. Well, as I mentioned, Tom and I are here in London for the Brexit vote. A lot of possible outcomes uh, remain. Uh, we don't know yet uh, which side will come away with the victory since uh, it is too close to call officially with the polls, which means that if you are investing and you want to take a stand, you also want to hedge that stand. Bill Blaine is an old friend of Bloomberg Surveillance, a strategist at Mint Partners. It's always good to be in the same city as you. Um, and we're curious, uh, what are people doing to, to uh, take risk off in this uh, in this time, well, that's an absolutely fascinating question, Mike. What are people doing 
to prepare for the vote? Well, um, th th everyone's got different guesses, and that's all they are, about what's going to happen. We do have a binary outcome. Britain's either going to vote in or out. At the moment, it is looking pretty unclear which one it will be. I guess we'll know by 4 o'clock in the morning, Friday morning. But what then happens following it? A lot of people expect that Sterling is going to crash out of bed and it'll be the end of all things British. A lot of people take the opposite view to that and think, well, look, if Britain decides to leave Europe, then it's not a British problem. It immediately becomes a European problem. So I'm afraid for the people who are looking to short-term trade this market, it's very much a question of guesstimates and placing your bets on anything except for green. The real issue is, what is the long-term investment scenario here? If you are a serious investor and you're thinking about the next 5 to 10 to 15 to 25 years for the insurance money and the pension money, which is going to be better for Europe and the UK? Is it going to be in or out? Well, I suppose you probably don't want to make that decision until you get to Friday. Uh, we see a lot of money on the sidelines now. Well, I think there, there's, uh, there's a growing... I mean, this has been an absolutely fascinating campaign, Mike. I mean, a lot of us started off looking at it and saying, it would be madness for Britain to pull out. It would be foolish. Look at the risks we're running. That's very much a status quo type of argument. And I do think that is the way the vote is going to be. So many people just don't know whether it's a better thing to be in or out. So the easy thing to do is just stick with the status quo and stay in. And I rather suspect that's the way the vote comes. But I think now there is an awful lot of the financial markets, and I mean by that the serious investment money that is considering the long-term implications of the euro and Europe. And I think one of the issues there is the euro simply doesn't work very well. You've got all these countries trying to adapt very quickly to using an unfamiliar currency. The only thing they can use is monetary policy. Fiscal policy is not on the table. That means that these economies aren't working. And it's just like communism, which was a great idea in economics, but fundamentally didn't work. And I think the worry for long-term investors are, is that if Britain stays in, Europe long-term, does that create long-term financial damage? Well, that's certainly been uh, the, the view of a lot of people on the Leave side. Uh, but you, you really don't know the answer to that either. Uh, well, I guess. that's the thing with this, uh, this referendum, Mike. None of us know the answers to anything. Everything is speculation. I happen to go with the David Cameron and Remain camp are probably right. You're going to have tremendous dislocation, but probably not as bad as people think, because if Sterling weakens, people are going to jump in and buy it. I saw an analysis today that uh, said you want to own British hotel stocks. If uh, if they vote to leave, because Sterling will weaken, and then it'll, you know it, you'll be overrun with us Yanks. You, you know may, what? You may not want that. <laughs> yeah, that's a very Bill. good point. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> Michael McKee and Tom Keen in London, thrilled to finally meet Bill Blaine, uh, uh, who who writes the morning porridge. Oh yes. Do people a healthy still, breakfast yeah. read? Absolutely. A healthy breakfast. I read it every morning. 
What? With my porridge. You, with your porridge, your surveillance porridge. Well, when I'm he- in the United States, we have oatmeal. Here We come here, we have porridge. Look, porridge yeah. is one of the longest established health foods on the planet. The reason we Scots are so big, strong, and powerful is every morning Scotsmen start the day with right. a bowl of porridge and a glass of whiskey. I'm sure that Lord Lamont did. I got the map out. I had no. I knew. I think he I knew the Shetland Islands yeah, were north of Scotland, oh, but yeah. I didn't know 300 some miles north of Scotland. Oh, it's a long, long way. I think Shetland's nearer to Norway than it is to Edinburgh. That's exactly what he said. Chancellor Darling is from that neck of the woods. Ch- uh, Prime Minister Brown and others. I, I know them. I, I, when I was a student, I used to canvass for Alistair Darling. How will they respond and that was to a long this time vote? Ago. Is, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get through the hysteria well, and the panic like the Guardian, George well, Soros, well, you know, world Tom, coming to an end. I think you're hitting on one of the main things that is going to happen. Let's forget about the vote and why you should go one way or the other and talk about the unintended consequences thereof. And one of the ones is going to be on British politics. Uh, the Labour Party here in the UK, the traditional opposition to the current government, which are the Conservatives or the Tories, or it's the other way around that the Conservatives are the opposition to Labour. But at the moment, the Labour Party is very, very weak after a damaging leadership um, run, and they had a strong leader in David Cameron. But of course, David Cameron has called this referendum, which looks like backfiring terribly on him. And we've seen a new challenger arrive in the form of Boris Johnson, everyone's favorite mop-topped blonde, as they call him. Um, It is likely that we will see a change around in the Conservative Party with a new leader emerging. The question is, does that mean Labour will be able to reinsinuate itself in British political thinking? We're not terribly sure. Is there a delineation in uh, in policies that's significant to the British people right now? Because you've got uh, Corbyn and Cameron campaigning together on the Brexit issue. Well, that's, again, a very good question, because it used to be that the best Conservative um, Prime Minister that we had since Margaret Thatcher was, of course, Tony Blair who was in fact elected by the Labour Party and Tony Blair followed very right-wing policies which worked extremely well and one of the reasons that the Conservative got in last time is they were pursuing effectively the same old Blairite policies but now we have a Labour Party that has gone hard left or harder left and it seems to be we have a Conservative Party that is um, on the verge of implosion. Now, I think that's very interesting because if you look at what's going on in the rest of the world, whether it's in Europe where you have far left, far right, and other protest parties emerging, and even in the States where the massive protest vote against established politicians looks to us to be exactly the same thing. Can I rip up the script? Of course. Alan Campbell is is of the United Kingdom, and he does great statistical work for Bloomberg. He's come up with a DXY equivalent for the pound. And it's a shocking picture. It will be my single best chart tomorrow on television here from London. And, and, and Bill, I'm thrilled to speak to you about it right now. This, this is a an index with focused weightings on the major, major trading partners of the United Kingdom. And I think people would be shocked by the weightings. 42% euro, 36% US dollar. It's a real balance between Europe and the UK and America that David Cameron and others have to deal with. I, I think that this, this index is absolutely the question of the moment. 
let's forget all this nonsense about whether we should be in or out in terms of what it'll mean for UK right. taxpayers or whatever. But let's focus on UK PLC or UK Inc. Because yeah. my whole thinking at the moment is this is not about, this is far too important to leave to politics. This is an issue about how the UK performs as one of the strongest mercantile nations in the country. And you can see from this index that we're pretty finely balanced between our trade with Europe and the rest of the world. The problem is our trade with Europe is in danger because of the failed economic theory that lies behind the euro. I'll go with that, but the chart is stunning. And folks, I'll put this chart on Radio Plus. You'll see it featured heavily for the next three days here in the United Kingdom. The single message of the chart is on a currency basis. The index is pound index, P-O-U-N-D, on the Bloomberg the United Kingdom has not recovered from the crisis of 08 because they're getting no help from Europe. And what I'd like to look at is the euro on the same basis, because I rather suspect that you'll find exactly the same thing, that Europe and the UK have languished in the wake of the crisis. In fact, I would argue that the UK is the strongest performing European economy since right. the crisis. So if we can do the same analysis on the rest, I'll think that will be very, uh, very thoughtful piece of analysis to present to people yeah. as to why the euro isn't working. Yeah. And ultimately, that's the problem here. So with Alan Campbell and our team over on the Death Star at Bloomberg LP, Mike, we announced pound index go p-o-u-n-d and it's it's i i you know they talked to me about this a few days ago and it beautifully shows the tension that you hear from the chancellor and from the prime minister yeah but here's the other thing i mean one of the reasons the uk economy is successful is we have our own economy one of the reasons that europe is struggling is because it's using mm -hmm. somebody else's economy, unless, of course, you happen to be a German. Right. Mike, I put this out on Bloomberg Radio Plus, the first look at it on Bloomberg Radio Plus. There you go. Uh, it's interesting because uh, you, as a, not a Brit, but a United Kingdom member, uh, you're a Scot, we have to make that clear, but you a get to vote. Scot and British too. <laughs> and, uh, and you have been you know, agonizing over this as we follow your, your daily notes. Um, you're, you've come down at uh, different times on both sides. You know what? I feel like Paul on the road to Damascus. There was I. I started off saying, hey, this is an absolutely no-brainer. We've got to stay in Europe. We mustn't rock the, rock the boat. But then I started looking at stuff like this and thinking, what is the long-term effect of tying yourself and your economy to an economic theory that doesn't work? And it was actually gelled for me. This is quite a funny story. It was actually gelled for me. I was on the BBC one morning. They are another broadcaster, by the way. I've heard, oh, heard of them. I've heard yes, of them. Yes. Yeah. So I was on the BBC, and they had this Chinese academic complaining that in China they spend far too much time in economics analyzing failed Western economics, and they want to spend more time doing Marxism. So I just simply reminded them that Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto were written next door in the British Library. <laughs> and that got me thinking, communism is an utterly failed. It's a wonderful economic theory, but it's utterly failed. And I'm afraid I've got to look at the euro, and just the euro, because the dream of Europe is fantastic. I don't agree with integration, but I love the idea of a single European marketplace. But the euro is holding back growth. It is creating massive unemployment for the youth of Europe. And I think that is holding back economies that link themselves to Europe, not just the ones that are members of the Europe, of the euro. So that's why I'm changing my view. And instruments like this 
Bloomberg Pound Index are fascinating. Now, Britain benefits because sterling is moving. It's a traded commodity and we adjust our economy. We continue to be mercantile as a result of that, whereas the rest of Europe is trapped under the dead hand of the euro. <laughs> there's a, there's a, uh, a firm statement for you. Tom, you got it. Uh, 30 seconds to ask Bill about the trains. The trains. Yeah. The Times of London. Rail firms to be fined if trains one minute late. Front page. This is front page news, not London News. We have to England go further than that. We have to look <clears> at the way that uh, we, we've got to make trains more efficient in Europe. And if that means every time a train's late, we take the chairman of that train company out and do something vicious to them, I'll go for that. <laughs> he should not move to America. <laughs> no. He would have no idea. I've been there, done say. that. Bill I'm Blaine, back. thank you so much, Mint Partners. And why don't you get us started with our next guest? Because you have a new research note just published by Berenberg Bank. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Holger Schmieding is with us. He's Berenberg's chief economist, one of uh, the people that uh, I presume works for you, Callum Pickering, just out with a note. Uh, taking the other side of what Bill Blaine was just saying, that the U.K. has been held back by the euro. Uh, your note suggests that uh, that's a myth, that the UK has been able to succeed economically under uh, the EU. They don't use the euro, but under the EU. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And we've pointed that out repeatedly. The fact is that Britain did badly while it was outside the European Union. It fell behind badly, for instance, in the 1960s and early 1970s, while on the continent, Germany and France, Italy and a few others were integrating. The Britain is now doing very well. Of course, having joined the uh, then European Economic Community in 1973 was not just the only point. It helped. The other point was that the UK did have serious economic reforms under Thatcher and continues to benefit from that. But the evidence is clear. Within the European Union, the UK has become the economy among the G7 with the fastest trend rate of growth per capita within the EU. And before it joined the EU, it had the lowest trend rate of growth per capita among the G7 nations. To think that outside the biggest common market in the world, with little access to the big European market for services, that outside the EU, the UK could thrive is just contra all available economic facts. Well, a mercantile nation does need trading partners, but your assumption is that they would not be able to cut a deal uh, to be a sort of Norway-like member of the European Economic Association. Well, they already have a special deal. They have their opt-outs. The Norway-style deal means that they accept full freedom of the movement of labor, which is exactly what the Brexit campaign is viciously opposed to, and in a way which really sometimes is, is put in interesting words, 
just look at the UKIP and what they have put up as a poster. So the Norway deal would come with free movement of labor. It would come with accepting payments into the EU budget and without the rebate that Britain currently has. And on top of that, it's pretty unclear whether the EU would actually offer Britain a Norway-style deal after Britain has filed for divorce. That's the heart of the matter. There's like there's all sorts of shades, Holger, to this in the, uh, all of the United Kingdom right now, and particularly London. What can Brussels offer? Mr. Juncker, I saw a passing comment today, didn't seem like he wanted to offer anything. Does, is Brussels or, quote-unquote, continental Europe, are they, are they in need of offering something to the English people? Well, Brussels, the European Union, the other 27 countries have already offered a sort of amended deal to Cameron. This is what the vote now is about. If the UK now rejects the deal, then of course the EU would not offer a better deal. The EU would say, okay, if you really don't want to get out, don't do want to get out, then, as German finance minister Schäuble said, out is out, and that would be it. Eventually, there will, of course, be negotiations, there will be trade going on, there will be new agreements, but these new agreements would be agreements with outsiders from an EU standpoint. They would take time, a long time to conclude. They would be significantly worse in terms of market access, especially for services for the UK, than what the UK now has as a full member of the biggest common market in the world and with rules on which the UK at the moment has a significant say. Mike, uh, something to look for. I'm not up to speed on this, Mike, and I'm going to quote this very carefully. Help me out if you would. It is called Servation. And it's maybe the next poll. It's the next poll that is due yeah. later today. I don't know, Servation. It's the United Kingdom. And obviously, we're poll crazy here right now in the United Kingdom. And Servation is the next one down yeah. the pike. Every wiggle in the polls has an <clears throat> impact on the markets. Yeah. On Sterling is a new poll due out uh, in no, an hour or so. We yeah. will uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Let me ask you, Holger, uh, the U.K., Uh, The argument that Bill Blaine was making for the U.K. was not so much uh, on a currency basis, because clearly uh, there are impacts and and trade impacts, but um, the idea that the Eurozone construct, and we have to keep in mind that we're we're talking about Britain leaving the EU, Uh, they're not in the Eurozone, but the Eurozone is the the heart of the EU, that that has not worked, that they have uh, not been able to um, treat each other as equals. The, the southern and periphery countries uh, have become uh, junior partners uh, with all the attendant problems that they've had. Uh, the banking system is in trouble and that Britain doesn't need that. Um, yes, Britain is not part of the Eurozone, as you already said. And uh, in that sense, Britain is somewhat aloof from what's going on on the continent. But if we look at what's going on on the continent, the first thing we have to say that the Eurozone includes Germany, which is a very successful economy, which has full employment, price stability, a fiscal surplus, and which exports three times as much, more than three times as much to China than does the UK. Germany is an example that in the Eurozone and in the EU, you are not held back by EU rules. 
it and as to what the problem countries of the eurozone um, is, as far as those are concerned we have seen significant progress in Spain Portugal Italy and Cyprus as well as Ireland some of the faster growing economies at the moment in Europe are Ireland are Spain are Cyprus that is economies who thanks to the help from other eurozone members did overcome their problems so to dismiss the eurozone as something that doesn't really work uh, misses the point that we have seen significant progress in the eurozone recently holger is there a london on the continent if this goes ugly and they leave which i guess mike i can say looking at the tape is not the bet right now but if they leave is there a london equivalent out there No, there is no London equivalent out there, and there won't be a London equivalent out there on the continent. If Britain leaves, it would be sad. What it would probably mean is that London could no longer be the virtually unchallenged center for services in Europe. London could no longer be to the same extent that it's now um, the place where global firms reside to sell services from London to the entire common market. London would still be a great place, an exciting place, a financial center. It would just be somewhat diminished with some jobs being lost to Dublin, to Amsterdam, to Frankfurt, to Paris. And if the Scots vote themselves out of the UK, probably a lot of jobs being lost from London going to Edinburgh. I think many of our American listeners, and I put myself in this group, don't understand the quality or the makeup, the distinction of European economic growth. We love to say, oh, it's not as good as America. There's eurosclerosis and other terms from another time. But when you say there's one and a half percent growth or two percent growth, what's the dynamic of that across consumption, investment, government and net exports? First of all, if we have in the Eurozone growth of around 1.6% and in the U.S. of around 2.1% in terms of per capita, uh, that is almost identical as the U.S. has more uh, growth in its uh, population. Secondly, Eurozone growth is now driven largely by consumption. There is a bit of investment in there, but consumer spending, which in Europe is about 60% of the total, less than in the U.S., consumption is rising. Employment is rising, not quite as satisfactory as in the U.S. over recent years, but employment is rising, real wages are edging up a little. The region is recovering from the double blow of the post-Lehman and the euro crisis. All in all, the eurozone and pretty much most of Europe are on the right economic track. Having said that, the political risks to that, especially the Brexit risk, does loom large, as that could cause a bit of confidence crisis and a setback, especially to business investment. Brexit, not the only vote this week. The Italians voted last weekend. And Spain. And, and Spain Thank votes Thank you for bringing this Sunday. up. Yeah. Uh, you've been keeping an eye on uh, those uh, What are the consequences of those elections, and what do they mean for markets? Um, They don't mean very much for markets as long as there is no Brexit. There are, of course, always political risks here and there. There are risks everywhere in the world, yes. But 
in case of Brexit, markets would probably look with much more scrutiny at other risks and would likely overreact to other risks if this one risk of Brexit had materialized. And that's when the Italian and Spanish political situation could come into focus. All that has happened so far in Italy is that um, regional elections have partly gone against the prime minister. That in itself is pretty normal. Um, in Italy, we have to watch whether the prime minister Renzi will win in October a referendum on a significant institutional constitutional reform even. He probably will, but it's not clear. And if he doesn't win that, the prime minister may be out of office. But that's a risk for October. In Spain, we have this Sunday repeat elections to parliament. Opinion polls suggest that the outcome will be almost identical to the outcome we had in December, when the prime minister Rajoy, the pro-reform chap, who has seen Spain through the aftermath of the euro crisis when he lost his majority. If that result is confirmed this Sunday, we might have a period of uncertainty in Spain, probably followed by the big mainstream parties, centre-right, centre-left, working together. Holger, what will you listen for from Janet Yellen this morning? I don't think there is much she can tell us really ahead of the Brexit vote. What I would listen to is whether there's anything she says that would suggest that even if things calm down in markets as they seem to be doing now, even if there is no Brexit, that nonetheless the Fed would not raise rates in July. But I guess ahead of the Brexit vote, there isn't really much we can learn before we know something about this big risk. Brilliant. Holger Schmeening, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.